You don't have to forgive somebody um, unless they mean it. This is the minimum. Halakha, Jewish tradition, is, is, a, is a floor, not a ceiling. It's meritorious to do that. If you can get over that and even forgive somebody, even though they're not being sincere about it or you think they're going to do it again, but you want to, you want to, that's a great, that's a higher level person. But you're just not required, according to Jewish law, to do that. The, the, the minimum is that you're only required when they are sincere and genuine and they've asked you at least three times. At that point, Jewish law kicks in and says, you know, if you don't forgive them now, then it's going on you. person actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. All right, now some of you are not going to like me after this episode, and I'll tell you why. Because we get into the nitty-gritty of the halachot, the Jewish commandments surrounding the concept of forgiveness. And sometimes that ruffles feathers because we just feel like, oh, I shouldn't have to forgive anybody for any reason that I don't want to. I have never had a rabbi on who actually talks about the commandments behind when someone wrongs us, how we're supposed to handle it and what that means for us if we don't handle it. Now, we've talked about the emotional ramifications, but we haven't really talked about the logistical or legal ramifications of it at all. So went out of my way to talk to one of the best educated lawyers slash rabbis that I know, trained in law, brilliant guy, also has a heart of gold, a wonderful husband and father to a family that I've known for over 20 years. He makes an incredible Shabbat table, sing, and he's also a musician. Uh, none other than Rabbi Mark Wilds, who is the founder and creator of MJE, Manhattan Jewish Experience. It is a wonderful organization for young Jewish professionals in New York City, and they have a few branches. He's also in the streets and talking to people, defending Jewish life and defending Israel in the most beautiful ways in New York. Uh, whenever there's a parade or there's some sort of peaceful protest, he's usually there. And I just adore this guy. I think you'll really enjoy listening to him. Also, I wanted to do a shameless plug for my show, which is going to Manhattan uh, in the United Solo Festival. It will be there Sunday, October 15th at 2 p.m. Please buy your tickets now. Go to unitedsolo.org. It's the largest solo show festival in the world. I was very lucky to get in. I'm very honored to be performing my one-woman original musical, Messianic Moments and Cosmic Conversations. It did very well here in LA, and we won an award, and now we're accepted into this festival. And uh, I was just told that if we sell out the first night, they will give us a second night of performance. So please go. Um, you can go to my website, barbheller.com backslash solo show, or you can just look up Messianic Moments and Cosmic Conversations at United Solo Fest, and you should be able to get tickets pretty easily. If you follow me on Instagram, and message me there or send me an email. I can send you the link. Uh, it's very easy to buy tickets. Uh, please bring your friends. And uh, without further ado, let's listen to the laws behind forgiveness and also just how to be a good person by Rabbi Mark Wilds. Rabbi Mark Wilds, it is such a joy to know you. It is so great to get to see you over 20 
two years. That's how long I've known you. That's insane. Wow. <laughs> Every time we come up with a number, I'm like, but we both look 22. Yes. Um, I mean, especially Jill, your wife, she's gorgeous. Can I know her? So first I want to talk a little bit about how we met mm-hmm. and then we're going to get into all the amazing things that you're up to. Cause you're not just a quote unquote rabbi in front of a congregation. You are out there, man. You, and you're out there, um, in the best way. So I want to clue everyone in, um, Rabbi Wilds, I mean, not single-handedly, but almost single-handedly started this idea on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which then grew all over Manhattan to help Jewish people like myself get an experience of Judaism. And he calls it the Manhattan Jewish experience. He is so easy to talk to that people will come from far and wide just to talk to him so that he'll listen because the way he listens is like with his whole heart, his whole soul. And I feel like that's the beginning of of the end there, but he makes such a space for any Jewish person and really any person to learn about these beautiful customs and, and laws in Judaism in the most easy, wondrous way. Um, if anyone's listening, that's heard about Chabad, C-H-A-B-A-D, even if you're not Jewish, um, you've seen these, these sites all over the world. They also do a great job. And Rabbi Wilds kind of created his own version of that in a way. Um, and I am one of those kids I was a kid when I met you. Well, I was 24, but it felt like I was a kid. Uh, So now you've figured out how old I am, guys. I'm 47, just turned. We, Rabbi Wilds and I also share a birthday week. Um, He's one day young, uh, older than me. He's uh, July 27th and I'm July 28th. If anyone wants to bring me a late birthday gift. But um, sitting at your Shabbat table with your wife and you guys had most recently gotten married and had like, I think you just had two kids at the time and they were babies. it was such a joy and watching you with your kids and blessing them on Friday night. And you're so cool. Like, okay, you're super smart. You're very well read. So someone might see you and be like, oh, he's kind of nerdy. And yet so freaking cool. He wears the coolest sneakers. He always looks like he just stepped out of a J. Crew catalog uh, or J- JQ, I should say. Oh, yeah. By the way, this is, this is, I'm so upset. My wife is not here to listen. To <laughs> it's okay. She'll hear it. And I'm sorry for the long introduction, but I, I, I felt, very, very kind, Barb. Very, I very felt kind. I need to start with that. Um, because my experience at 24 years old, never being at a Shabbat table before and seeing how you were with your family, it was kind of like being at the Israelite retreat. It was like, it was the next step. I went to a big retreat, had this five day experience doing Judaism. And then I went to your table and I saw your family and I saw it in real IRL in real life. And you had two little kids and yet you pulled it off seamlessly. You were not stressed. You were just so overwhelmed and happy to have everyone sitting there in this, in this apartment in New York city. And I cannot thank you enough because whenever I have those moments where I'm like, what am I doing all this for? I remember you and you're one of those people that brings me right back to the intention. So without further ado, that's, I know I could talk about the books you write and how many thousands and thousands of people you've helped over the years. But to me, that was my introduction to you. So I hope that suffices to say. Oh gosh, That was not only so kind, but I have to tell you, just, I, I needed that, that little chizuk of up, just uplifting inspiration from you, Barbie, one of the most inspirational people I've ever met. Um, in my rabbinic career, this is 100%, like, I mean, anyone who's listening to this, who listens to you knows this to be true. So this is not 
what we call in Hebrew a chiddush. This is not a new insight, but you. Um, the reason I was probably that way to you at my Shabbat table 22 years ago is because you were there, you were sitting there, and we do have a lot of great quality people that have come through our doors over the years. And that's the greatest thing about what I'm able to do is meet people like you and, um, yeah. I don't know, teach, inspire, whatever it is that we're able to do. Um, it's been, I cannot believe it's been 22 years. And I don't remember the last person that has actually spoken only about two of my four kids because two of them didn't come into existence yet. That's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. You realize those, those two who were not in existence are now uh, 19 and 20. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just had two boys and Kanina Hara, they were so cute. Um, and anyway, let's get back to you. So if you, th there's been a couple of things on my mind. And before I get to the questions, I'm going to stump you here, which I, I don't, I don't think I could ever stump you. You're so smart and so bright. Um, and you have such wisdom. When, when you look at what's going on in the world, it's been kind of plaguing me because you're one of my teachers. You taught me the value of having law. And one of the hardest things for me is to walk by kids today. And I'm, and I'm going to say kids as far reaching as 23, 24, 21, 19, not little kids, but mm -hmm. 18, 19 through, through, I'd say 27. In fact, the DSM, the book that everyone's going by now is almost like their, like their Torah, which is like, it tells you everything about disorders. This is literally the thing that everyone talks about people's unfortunate disorders, right? It says that a person, I think they changed the age, if I'm not mistaken, from 21 to either 24 or 27 recently, you can't make a rational decision until you're that age. So if that's true, right? And this is the book that everyone follows, forget the Bible or the Torah, or the Talmud, right? They're just looking at this book. When you walk by, cause you're in New York city. So you're looking at humanity all the time. I was just there. It's such a beautiful city. And I'm looking around at all these human beings and I see so many people that look lost, confused, they're on drugs. It's obvious they're smoking weed right down the street in front of everybody to see. There's women, they're not wearing bras anymore. There's people literally walking down the street naked today, like with paint on their body and they're calling that okay. And I'm not here to be a negative ninny. I'm an actor. I'm surrounded by you know hippies all day long and I love it. But when you see it in larger numbers today and people are literally looking at the world as though there are no rules, right? It's just whatever you feel, whatever pleases you, whatever pleasurable. And I'm sorry to hit you with a challenging question on the top, but I don't want to forget this. It's the meat of why I wanted you on this podcast. In order to get to forgiveness, we have to have some sort of laws in the world. So because you're such a good salesman, on what the Torah or the Bible, Judeo-Christian Islamic values at the, at the heart of it, what it teaches, could you give me like a 30 second, and you can think about it, we can pause, but could you get, because I know you teach classes on this all day long, could you give me a sales pitch for why it's important to have some law and order that's not just about the government or psychology telling you what should be? Why people need some kind of structure in life? Yes. Um, it's an amazing question. I mean, you know, on one hand, I can just say, you know, there's a famous term we used to use in law school, race ipsa loquitur, which is a fancy Latin term for this, the thing speaks for itself. So you just answered your own question. When you're walking on the street and you see, unfortunately, you know, it sounded like, um, you know, one of the weird scenes from Star Wars that you're describing, but it's become the norm today. It's because people are not following some kind of path. 
And the question of objective morality um, or objective anything has been called into question primarily on college campus today. So, you know, when, when somebody shows up at MG and they're in their early 20s or mid 20s, they've already been, I don't want to use the word, well, I'll use the word, they've been brainwashed to some degree not to believe that there is anything that we can intuit that we can know as being right or wrong. It's just a question of how you're feeling on a given day. And feelings are very, very important. But the day we start allowing our feelings to dictate our lifestyle, our behaviors, is you're going to start seeing what you just described uh, on the streets of New York City. Um, and I don't say this with any kind of like, you know, religious kind of, you know, judgment or anything. It's just the natural consequence of what's going to happen without some kind of direction in life, some kind of mentorship. I find that my students don't have good mentors. Now, that's one of the reasons they're coming to MGE. But I would tell you, I, and we all need them. I, I have amazing mentors. I still have amazing mentors. And I find that people are not as interested in them anymore. They don't feel the need for direction. They're just, just going. And it's, it's, it's a huge issue. It's a huge problem because people are not happy. And you can't be happy if your life is directionless and your life will continue to be without direction if you don't have some kind of spiritual structure and certain values that are shaping the path in life that you're trying to take. And there's no other way of saying it other than we have to return to some sense of normalcy, of some sense of, of, um, of what it is that we believe in. What do we believe is true and real? And how can we use those truths to, to follow and, and have just basic modicum of happiness because it's an, it's an illusion that if you don't, if, if you can be completely self-autonomous and not have to follow any rules and laws, there is this illusion that everything is going to be great. We'll be, we'll be much happier. But we know this, you know, the, the, the silly analogy I've always used, if you're on a rooftop and you're playing soccer and there's no fence, you can't enjoy yourself because you're constantly thinking the ball's going to go over the side. The fence is what actually creates a certain level of comfort, of ease, of pleasure. And those structures, I, I found the same thing. You mentioned my kids, like kids, need, and it's not just kids. We always say, oh, kids need boundaries, but you know, the parents and the adults don't. We all need it. We all need some sort of structure and guidelines. Once we have that, we know the playing field that we can enjoy ourselves in the, play, in the, in the sandbox. But we're not going to be able to do that if we you know, if everything is in and everything is okay, and there are no structures, rules, boundaries, it's all up for grabs, because there's no objective right or wrong, there's no truth. It's just a matter of your opinion or the mood you happen to be in. So I, um, I, I don't say this with any glee, like, oh, look how great Judaism looks, because it has all these rules, and no one's following them. I think it's very sad. Uh, I've never had so many sad students in my life. And I'm not and, and now at the same time, I think there's a tremendous drive and yearning for some kind of structure, which is why people keep coming. We just came back from Israel. We brought over 40 people to Israel and our, our dinners and our classes and our minyan. And they're, they're doing great. People are coming because people are hungry for some kind of direction, spiritual direction in life, because emotionally we can't feel happy without it.
Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I was on that trip a couple of times. I think I was in Madracha for one of the Shabbos on that trip. Not have to. If you ever want to go to Israel, either on birthright or just just for the first time or even the second time, because the first time it wasn't such a great experience. You got to go with Manhattan Jewish experience. See if there's a way. I know there's our, there's men's trips and women's trips. You don't have to be 20 to, to go. You, they have all kinds of things. If there's room. I'm a pretty moderate person. I can really hear and see, and I really try to make room for both sides, if you will. Although I feel like there's no two people that are on the same side. I think we're all complicated. I have a song in my new musical called People Are Fascinating because we are not just black and white. We are colorful. We have red moments and green moments and brown moments and purple moments. And we have moods and we 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 have different needs. And when I hear people say that so blanketly, religion is dead. We don't need religion anymore. We have to create something new. I get scared because I came to religion. I was one of those hungry and thirsty people at 24, growing up a total secular Jew in Boca. I didn't even keep Yom Kippur. And I remember how lonely that was because I had no structure. We didn't even talk about God in my family. Can you imagine? And like, all I do is teach meditation classes on how to to connect with God because I love it. You know, what do you say to your students? Because I'm sure you get this all the time in Manhattan. Well, I'm not doing this because it's all or nothing. I'm not going to become a religious Christian or a Catholic or or a Hindu or a Jew more so because why should I look at God's law? It was written by men and, and who cares about this? Like, we don't need, we don't need laws. We, we, we know what's wrong, right? A, a person knows what it means to be good. Yeah, I know what it means to be good. So what would you say to that? Yeah. So I, I have a couple of answers and it's a very important question. Um, by definition, I don't think we are capable of knowing the creation cannot know itself anywhere near than the creator can. If we, and that's why humility is one of the most important traits to cultivate in life says about Moses at the end of his life, that the man Moses was the humblest. I mean, of all the things to say about Moshe Rabbeinu, who was God's like study partner, and he was this huge intellect and greatest prophet, why humility? Because it takes a humble person to recognize that we don't know everything, and that we have to look to something greater and higher than ourselves. That's one of the ideas behind wearing a kippah, by the way. My men, it's probably only obligation for men because we forget quicker that there is something above us. We need a reminder that life does not end here. And if life ends here and we think we can naturally intuit right from wrong, and we think we can naturally intuit what's going to make us happy, what's going to make us less happy without looking into some kind of divine wisdom that's beyond us, we're fooling ourselves. And we're proving it to ourselves that we need some kind of source to consult. Now, you said something else which is really important, and that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater, because I think a lot of people do agree with what I just said, but can't handle the whole thing. It's just too much. And you know, and the Talmud says, tafasta. you try to get, grab onto too much, you end up with nothing. Someone will look at a fully Orthodox Jew and go, that's nice. No way. There's no way I'm living that kind of life. I'm not, in, I'm, I'm not about to, whatever it is that people think you have to do to live that kind of life. Some of it is, I think, uh, misunderstood, but but even so, there's so much beauty and wisdom and mitzvot that a person can absorb and, and assimilate into their life and get something out of it without having to say, well, I'm gonna, it's either all or nothing. Judaism is not an all or nothing religion. It never was. 
it's pretty clear from the Torah that God would prefer some observance than none at all. Um, the question is, do we see it as a value system to tap into of ideas of spirituality, of community? Because there's very little community left in the world outside of people who are involved in, the, and I don't just mean in Judaism. You know, there's a great book, Robert Putnam was a Harvard political scientist wrote, it's called Bowling Alone. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it was a great book. And he said, he argued that even though Americans are bowling more than ever, that's good news for your listeners that people are still bowling. <laughs> fewer, fewer people are bowling in teams. People are doing things more alone. COVID, by the way, exacerbated this, made it worse. But what COVID accentuated, and I think what it developed, and, and I think it was just, it opened our eyes to how lonely we are and how much we need each other. And when Aristotle you know, famously said that man is a social animal, he wasn't just being philosophical, he was talking about on a very human emotional level. We need to be around each other. We need to know each other's names and go to the same places repeatedly in order to have proper relationships and not to be isolated and unhappy. And social media isolates and um, sometimes work isolates community creates connectedness. Connectedness makes people happier and more joyous. The levels of depression during COVID were astronomical, especially in New York, by the way. And, uh, and nobody spoke about this particular population because everyone was nervous, of course, about the elderly with pre-existing conditions. And, and those are obviously, in a purely physiological sense, the people that were at most risk. But there was another group, and that was young young professionals living in their little two by four apartments. I was one of them. I did not touch a soul for six weeks. Do you know how hard that is for me? I, I'm like you, I'm a double E extrovert. I cannot be alone for a long time. And it doesn't mean that I will you know, de be depressed. It's more like, I literally didn't know how to get on in the world. I'm constantly surrounded by my students. I'm constantly in shows. I'm constantly co-creating things. And I don't do drugs, but I, I go to the park and I stick my hand, feet in the, in, in the, the dirt and I, and I talk to people. And when I couldn't do that, and I heard about our friend, we had, we had a friend, mutual friend that was in the hospital and I was working at SAR with one of his kids. And I, I heard you were with his kid. And now yet you have to be in your apartment for at least nine days. That was the original lockdown. I was part of that group of people. Mm. And we, you and I never spoke about this, but to hear about our, first of all, hearing our friend's name made it so real and so scary. And then I got on a plane because I was terrified of being in my tiny apartment on the, on Central Park West. With, I had a roommate, you know, rightfully so she was scared. So I felt like I was living in a prison. It was terrifying. I didn't know if I was going to get out. I called four different doctors that I know very well. And they said, get on that plane for six hours. You'll be safer than staying in New York in the way that you're living. It's not going to be good for your immune system. Oh, but it was terrible. And I appreciate you sort of being autobiographical about this because I, I don't know if people realize the, the, the havoc that that wreaks on our life. Now, listen, the pandemic's over. We don't have to go back there, but we need to learn from it. That's the whole point in Judaism of going through stuff in life is to grow and develop from it. And I don't think we talk about this enough, which is how much we need each other. And you know, being part of a spiritual growing community where people are discussing issues and talking and hanging out at a kiddish after services. So interjecting here, a kiddish is when Jewish people after a morning or evening service will get together and celebrate Shabbat, 
celebrate the holiday that's going on. They eat a few snacks together, unless it's Yom Kippur, which is a day of fasting. And they'll say some blessings. They might sing a couple songs. But it's a way to informally kind of gather after the prayer services are over. And going, it's oxygen for the, it's literally oxygen. It's what we need. It's not simply a nice thing. Are you religious? You go, you're not. People just don't have those kind of networks. I'm not saying people don't have work networks. People do. People have college buddies they still hang out with from school. And they have, but it's different than having a community where you go consistently and people know, oh, where's so-and-so? I haven't seen him in a couple of Where's she been? She lo- I knew MG was a community for the first time when a, a young woman came over to me. It was just probably around the time you were there, maybe a year or two after, a long time, a while ago, 20 years ago. And she said, did you hear so-and-so lost her job? And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, maybe we can. And like during the kiddish, two weeks later, we found her a new job. Now, I'm not, I'm not a headhunter. I don't know jobs. But if you have 100 people hanging out at a kiddish and they're talking to each other and they actually care about each other, we're going to find her a job. And that's called being part of a community. And I fear, I, I'm just seeing this. I just brought a, a wonderful young group of people to Israel. But it's different today, spending time with that age than it was when you were coming. It really has changed the last 20 years has really changed. So many more people are on medication today. So many people have been unfortunately way too pampered in their youth and are triggered by, I don't know what the, I, I know that I'll give you one little silly example. Israel's had a lot of these protests over judicial reform and they're real. I mean, I'm not trying to poo-poo it. It's, but there was a whole chat, maybe we shouldn't go, it's too much. You're not gonna go to another democratic country when you have some people protesting. It's okay, my son's a little naive. Yosef, he was walking with his guitar on the street and he saw Kumsitz. A gathering of people singing. Realized he's a spiritual, you know, naive kind of kid. And it, it wasn't a Kumsitz, it was a protest rally, but they were singing, the whole world is a very narrow. Narrow bridge, a very narrow bridge. But the main thing is not to be afraid. Yeah, they were singing that song, wow. That's a protest in Israel. I mean, it was like, okay, some of them got a little out of hand, but they weren't that different. And people were considering not going. Now, 20 years ago, when it's, maybe if there was a terrible like Intifada three, God forbid, and there were rockets and bombs landing, you know, but none of that was happening. There was just some, and people were like really nervous and they're concerned. We had people, you know, looking at the itinerary and, and saying, well, this one, this is a little, I don't know. It's just, and 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 I don't fault them. I'm not upset with them. I get it. It's just that we need to realize that that this is not the way things always were, and that things have changed for the worse. And we need to pull things back a little. I I feel that way. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I was in Israel in 2005. I went back for a third time to learn for the summer um, at Midrash Rachel, and we, I believe that was the summer of the Gush Katif protest. And Gush Katif, if anyone's listening, I think I talked about it one other time on the podcast, but it's worth repeating that it was this tiny city on the water in Israel where you had Jews and Arabs living together so peacefully. It was it, my friend, Naomi Solomon, uh, Yehuda Solomon's wife, um, and we should say Yehuda is Naomi Solomon's husband, but Naomi and I went to NYU together. We're the same age. And she created this gorgeous book. It's like a tapestry of, of the most gorgeous photos of uh, it's a t- coffee table book of Gush Katif and the entire she just documented it like like a life photographer you know time life books and 
what's the only thing missing in that, which most people don't know about Israel, is that when we have a protest, Baruch Hashem, it hasn't gotten crazy out of hand. We don't kill each other. Uh, the only time that ever happened was during the Hanukkah war that was very famous where the, the Maccabees actually had to, to, unfortunately, that was the saddest part. And I learned this from Rabbi Abraham Fisher at Merdash Rachel. It was the only time in Jewish history that we had a civil war amongst each other. And it was because it wasn't just a civil war, it was a religious war where there were Mac, there were other Jews that wanted to assimilate so badly that they wanted to kill Jews for being Jewish. And we had to defend ourselves. That's why it's called the Israeli Defense Force, right? So what being there and i was scared too but this was before such a thing as trigger warnings it was like i'm learning here of course i'm going to go to the hotel and i'm, I'm going to wear my orange gush katif shirt i wore it so many times Rabbi wilds that it actually like disintegrated because it was made of horrible cotton um they were made really quickly and i, I remember saying my tehillim at, at the wall i had never been to gush katif but because i knew that there were these Jewish people who had lived there for so many years and, and were from America and, and, and England and had these botany degrees and they would grow the most incredible produce. They couldn't get it out fast enough. They threw it into the water because they figured they'd feed the fish because by the time they got it out, it wouldn't even make it to, to France, but they were exporting all this stuff. And that piece of land was given to, the, to our Arab cousins. And to this day, I, I believe nothing's been done with it. And it was, you know, a, a, a Jewish protest in Israel even amongst each other is, is pretty peaceful. But I think the Americans watch so much media and we see what's happening in Chicago and, and in, in different places across our country where it gets varied. I mean, I was here in, in, in LA in 2020, we had lockdowns because of the riots, not because of, they don't call them riots. People get upset when I say riots, but they were literally looting and rioting and people getting killed and hurt very badly in the streets because they wanted their Louis Vuitton uh, bags or whatever. And it was insane. So that was when I moved back to Florida for a little while. But getting back to what you're saying, I think you're hitting on the same nerve, which is when we don't have law that's not just set up by the government, but an internal, like, what will the divine, and call it what you will. I have people of all religions listening to this and people who are like me, a little confused and how much they want to go in or out of their own religion. But I believe that until we have that, the divine's looking at me, not just the government or the police force, we're not going to win. And, and I, I think if you look back in the last 50 years, since people stopped going to church and synagogue on the weekends, and now banks are open on a Sunday, there's no Sabbath anymore. So we're, we're literally crumbling from this lack of community. And what I, I'll go further, when I go to synagogue, what I love about it is generally speaking, unfortunately, it's happening more and more. I was actually just speaking with a reform rabbi about this on, on Friday night, um, that shuls and, and, and churches have become so political. They're now centers of political stuff and not the religion. And what I love about the synagogues that I go to, like Happy Minion, um, different Chabads, is we don't talk about politics. No, it's a big talk mistake. About, it's it's yeah. a big mistake, too, because they need to be safe places. And unfortunately, Political discussions are not are, are not safe anymore. I, I don't mean physically unsafe, and we have to be able to talk out these issues. But shul, synagogue, church, mosques are not places for that. They're places to congregate to feel a sense of spiritual connectedness with God and with our fellow human being. And I think I have friends, I have students who've come to MG and said they can't go anymore. They don't want to listen to the 
the rabbi, the, the minister, whoever it is, go off on their, you know, and by the way, it's tempting. It's very tempting because I have, we all have our own strong personal opinions, but I try very, very hard. I did it during the Trump years. I've been doing it during the Biden years. Keep my mouth shut and just, you know, I'll try to talk about moral, spiritual issues, but keep them away from the political divide because it's just the third rail. And we need to, we need to feel the love. We need to feel the love. So I, I I think we do our congregants and our friends a disservice not to have some place where we don't have to hear that. I agree. So now let's get to the bigger question that I, I, I prepared you for, what it means Jewishly to forgive. Forgiveness in Judaism is a very, very important thing because we do believe that the way we relate to other people, God relates to us. So if we go to God and we say, hey, Hashem. One of the 72 names for God. I need you to look aside, put that aside. It wasn't my best day, you know? Um, you know? And basically that's what Yom Kippur is all about. Because if, if we ask Hashem to just evaluate us according to what we deserve, what we don't deserve, none of us is going to come out smelling too pretty. We really need mercy. But if we act, if we're tough on our fellow human being, but we come to God for compassion, that doesn't jive. And there are lots of Jewish sources that indicate that God relates to us the way we relate to other people sort of measure for measure. And, and that should be an encouragement for all of us. I'm speaking to myself as I'm sharing this with you and your listeners, that we we should try to you know cut people a little slack. Now, having said that, I also believe there's a big distinction um, and there's a theological distinction between Christianity and Judaism when it comes to forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever talked about this. So we don't believe- not Judaism, really. Yeah, Judaism does not believe in forgiving for the sake of forgiveness. Like if- if somebody is really not contrite and someone is really not remorseful and they're continuing their poor behavior and they still ask for forgiveness, or you don't feel that they're being sincere and genuine, according to Jewish law, you are not required to forgive that person. Wow, now, I never knew that. I thought that if you don't forgive the other person, as it says in the Talmud, mm-hmm. uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if they ask three times and they earnestly mean it, maybe this is where you're kind of defining that if they really mean it, then if you don't forgive them, it's as if you took on the sin yeah. that they did. Yeah, that's true. And that's quoted in the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. It's from the Talmud that after the third time, it becomes your problem. But that's only if you believe the person who's asking for forgiveness is being sincere and genuine. Wow if they're not continuing the poor behavior that's that made you so upset in the first place. Whereas in Christianity, because of the belief in original sin, that we are just sort of tainted, we can't help but sin. The greatest thing you can do is forgive someone who's continuing to sin. Judaism doesn't believe that. Judaism says that you need to change. And if you don't change, I have no responsibility to forgive you. Now, I do have a responsibility, as you're pointing out, or, uh, correctly, if you are being genuine and you are being sincere, and I still am, a, a, you know, I'm not accept, I'm not accepting it. That's a problem. Then you have to really work on it. So, uh, before you continue, and you're doing such a great job explaining these things, it's clear that you spend all day long breaking all these really difficult, advanced tech- theologies into bite-sized pieces. So you're definitely in the right line of work. If you if you ever doubted that, um, however. My question is, when people hear you say, and they may cut it off right now because the human condition, right? Oh, see, I don't have to forgive my dad because I don't actually believe him. What if? 
if he's what? trying, if he's trying, it's a really good question, Barb. Right. If, okay. he's, if he's trying and he's really making the best effort he can make as a human being, then we have a responsibility to try to forgive. If the person is just acting out of not in good faith, the person is saying one thing and doing something else, they're really being two-faced about it, even if it's your parent, then you have no responsibility to forgive that individual because what you're doing is you're letting them off the hook. You're letting that person be forgiven and continuing the poor behavior. And that's not, the whole goal here is for people to change and to grow. The For goal. sure, but I, sorry to interrupt you. I just, yeah, I just yeah. wanted to find this a little further. So let's take Shlomo Karlovach or like Rabbi Aaron, for instance, because that's someone you you and I both know really well. Thank God he's my Rav. Yeah, he just spoke I, for us last week. He was amazing. Oh, I love him so much. He's the reason I have a podcast. He dared me. He's unbelievable. So, yeah, so I feel like he might say something additionally to what you just said, which is even because I actually had him on and this is the main topic we talked about. He would say something, and I can't put words in his mouth, something maybe along the lines of, well, you might not be able to forgive them or, but, but the thing that they did mm -hmm. in, in actuality was for you. So I want you to go back a little bit and let us know because we want to grow as listeners, right? And we, you don't, I know you so well that I, I know you don't want people to listen to this and say, well, I don't have to forgive my father or whoever did it. Sorry, I keep bringing up my dad because he was the hardest one for me to forgive. And thank God we have a whole episode about that. But when someone has someone really challenging in their life, something awful, unspeakable, I don't even want to go into it because I don't want to trigger too many people. But let's say someone's walking around with this thing where the person never even came back to them or they died and they didn't even have a chance to forgive. What do you do instead? Because we don't want them walking around saying, I don't have to forgive them and F them. And I'm going to write a whole thing about it and, and be angry for the rest of my life. What do you do instead? I, I, okay. So you're forcing, which is really great. You're very articulate. You're forcing me to distinguish between forgiving of the person and dealing with the issue yourself. Okay. I was answering the former which is, but, I, but I, I'd like to speak to the latter, and I'm sure that's what Rabbi Aaron was, was addressing. The former, which is that I don't have a responsibility to forgive somebody who's not serious about their, their request for forgiveness. If it's not real, then I don't have to be real back to them and let them off the hook, okay? Having said that, it would be self-destructive not to try to kind of make peace with what happened. Even if you can't make peace with the person, you're supposed to try to make peace with the person and the person's supposed to be running after you. And even if not, you try to give them the benefit of the doubt and try to still make peace. But if you can't, you still want to move on from that experience. You don't want that negative experience plaguing you the rest of your life. You want to be able to somehow assimilate that into your psyche and somehow even grow from it. Now, it's more challenging to do that when you can't actually sit down with the other person and do it with the other person. But sometimes that's not always possible. I, I have a number of students who have said to me, they can't go back to their parents. They, they suffered so much abuse or, or in some other terrible relationship that they can't psychologically handle sitting with the person anymore. So they need to now talk to a therapist or their rabbi or someone else and learn how to you know, let it go and learn how to move on from that and learn how to even grow from that awful experience. But yeah, so I don't want anyone misunderstanding like, 
oh, the best, you know, just hold it in. I mean, that would be terribly self-destructive. That would be so counterproductive to your own mental and, and, and emotional health, not to learn and not to figure out how can I move on from this. But moving on from something and growing from something might sometimes be different than having to forgive the other person. You may not have to forgive the other person, but you still have to move on. You have to forgive yourself and, and, and move on and be able to you know, just live as a normal human being. And that might require letting it go, maybe even forgiving the other person. Um, but you technically don't have to do that if the other person is not sincere and genuine. That's all I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, let me let me just say one other thing. It's very, very important for anyone listening to this is that we do have to take care of ourselves. The Torah very much believes in taking care of ourselves, which means that if somebody is the object of someone else's abuse, okay, even if, God forbid, let's say it's a parent or someone like that, you do what's necessary to, to, to protect yourself, even if it means calling the police. That's what Jewish law teaches. Now, the best possible scenario is that we sit down we try to work it out, like mentioned, like people, like human beings. But unfortunately, and I've learned this over the years, not everybody's on the level. Not everybody's able to do that. But just because the person who offended and hurt you in some way can't do that, doesn't mean you have to be plagued by that the rest of your life. You still have a responsibility to yourself to be able to somehow work it out and let it go and move on. I mean, I can't, I can't emphasize that enough because I've, um, I mean, I'll just tell you one uh, story of a young woman who we were able to thankfully get her an annulment from her previously abusive husband. And I couldn't, she couldn't get a get, she couldn't get a religious divorce for it. And she didn't want to be stuck. And if she had gone back to him, it would have just been so deeply painful, psychologically unhealthful, unhealthy. And we were able to actually, which is very rare under Jewish law, to get um, an annulment, to get rabbis to say that the actual wedding itself never took, so she doesn't even need a divorce. It's very rare, but we were able to do it. But um, but I didn't I didn't push her to go back and try to work it out with him because it would it just it was too an extreme of a situation for her. So. I'm sorry to get caught up in this, but this yeah. is a podcast about forgiveness. So I'm kind of like doing surgery on what you just said to really define what it is. When you say you don't have to forgive the person, then what do you do instead? I'm not saying. You, 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 now, by the way, the ideal is to forgive. The ideal is to forgive. But let's say you can't. And let's say you don't have to, according to Jewish law. And again, you don't have to if the person's you know, request for forgiveness, if they're, I'm sorry, is just an I'm sorry in name in, in and not in actuality. It's not sincere. It's not genuine. So you need to, you, you know, I'm a big advocate of therapy. You need to sit with a professional uh, or the really good friend who knows you well, who can somehow still be objective. That's why people have therapists, because not it's not so simple to have to find that. And to to try to understand what it is that I need to do to to rid myself of this. Now, for some, in some cases, forgi forgiving the other person might be necessary. I'm just saying theologically, you're not required okay. to do that. But well, psychologically, it might be necessary. Those two things don't always go hand in hand. 
Something right. might not be theologically required according to Jewish tradition, but your therapist might tell you it's the only way you're going to get out of this pickle. Right. See, the way I look at it, and maybe it's, you know, we have different flavors of Judaism, which I wanted to kind of get into for a minute for people who are like, I don't get it. I know a Jew, but he has a black hat and these long curls coming out of the side of his head. And, you know, he he lives in a particular neighborhood. And then I see Rabbi Wilds, who, you know, looks like Anthony Michael Hall in 16 Candles and, you know, still looks like that 20 years later. Um, <laughs> but um you know, how is it that he's modern Orthodox? So we're going to get into that in a second, but I just want to clarify, because this is a really important piece and I'm sorry to ad nauseum this, but I love having a debate with you because I feel like uh, it's Lishma. It's like literally for the sake of heaven. So can we agree then that maybe it's because I've had so much like David Sachs in my life every Sunday for the past 20 years and Rabbi Aaron for 22 years and, you know, you and certain and Rabbi Levine, who we both know and love for Benji. Um, I am always going to fare on the side of, I forgave them anyway, even right. though, can we distinctually differentiate? You can, that- you, can, you, you, you can do that. In other words, I'm sorry to cut you off. Wait, it's okay. No, no, let me, let me hear the rest of your question. So, so the rest of it is because I know the bedtime Shema so well, and that's, we've talked about this on the podcast before. It's a, it's the prayer we say before we sleep. It is the best melatonin. You don't have to spend a dime. You don't have to go to you know, sleep school. You can literally just say this one paragraph. And I, I've actually um, butchered it a little bit. And I literally just say two sentences. And then the Shema every night before I go to sleep, I say, please God. And forgive me. I don't say the whole thing in Hebrew. I say it in English. But I say, please, God, forgive anyone that hurt me intentionally or unintentionally in this lifetime or in a previous lifetime, because I know this is not my first rodeo. I've been here before. And please forgive me for hurting anyone else in this lifetime or lifetime before, because I can feel that I did something wrong before, because sometimes I have a propensity to do this or put someone in their place maybe like I'm doing now totally unintentionally because I have so much respect for you. But no, you know what no, I'm saying? No. I'm a law person. Like I'm not a lawyer, but I have six lawyers in my family and I, I hang out with a lot of lawyers. Wink, wink, you too. But the, the point is that I'm trying to make is that I really believe that just because you don't not required maybe to say to the other person, I forgive you, you still have to do it before you go to bed or acknowledge that God has to forgive them because we all are operating on the same operating system, which is we have free will. And then there's God, right? And God lives through us and and between us. And so if we don't say even that I forgive, because I know it was for me, even if I don't tell them, do you see what I'm saying? Like, can we distinct? I mean, the way I would ask somebody, um, unless they mean it, this is the minimum. Halakha, Jewish tradition is, is is a floor, not a ceiling. It's meritorious to do that. If you can get over that and even forgive somebody, even though they're not being sincere about it, or you think they're going to do it again, but you want to, you want to, that's a great, that's a higher level person, but you're just not required according to Jewish law to do that. The, the, the minimum is that you're only required when they are sincere and genuine, and they've asked you at least three times. At that point, Jewish law kicks in and says, you know, if you don't forgive them now, then it's going on you. And maybe we just created a new um, class for you at MJE. And please just, you know, maybe mention my name one time that I, I inspired you to do it on forgiveness, because look how much you and me who know each other so long and, and I really get you 
right? And I know you don't mean any harm at all, had such a hard time like defining it, right? Because to me, the opposite of cancel culture, if you will, and cutting people out and listening to one news story. And now I know this president, presidential candidate, you know, you and I had to talk about RFK the other day. It's like, it's so easy to speak Lush and Harass, evil, evil tongue about somebody or believe it or listen to it that you literally cut them out forever. And I think the opposite of that is forgiveness and to operate from well, where was this person coming from? How screwed up is their brain? How difficult was their childhood? So I can really try to understand why they would even do or say that before I say, I'm closing the door. They voted for this person. They're dead to me. They did this to my friend. They're dead to me. You know, that kind of thing. Last but not least, I want to know one thing you wish the whole world, Jews, non-Jews would do, how they could live a life of more freedom. What's one practice? Well, I'll give you a practice if you don't mind me doing a shameless plug for my book. That was my next question, but yes, put it together. Uh, so it's it's called the 40-Day Challenge, and it's based on a premise that if we don't prepare for something, we're probably not going to have a very meaningful experience. And one of the things that I think a lot of Jews in particular are disappointed with, but this, this lesson really applies to Jews and non-Jews alike, is the high holidays. We're just sort of expecting to show up, we go Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, expecting to have this great aha moment. And we've done no preparation. And there's a very famous phrase from one of my, I didn't have the honor of studying with him one-on-one, but all my teachers were his students, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, who famously said, Ein Kedusha Bali Hachana, there can be no holiness without preparation. Preparation is key in order to be able to be in the moment and get something out of whatever experience you want to have in life. In the beginning of the book, I talked a little about Tom Brady because not that I'm such a big sports fan, but he is crazy preparation kind of person and never rested on his laurels. And I love that. He did not expect things to just be because I'm Tom Brady. He never took himself or his athletic abilities for granted. He just kept training and working hard. And I just feel, so I wrote this because we've got 40 days now beginning uh, the very holy month um, of even though it's not our month of birthdays, but it's the month of Elul. It's a month of spiritual closeness, and it's an opportunity to prepare so that when Yom Kippur hits and the high holidays are upon us, we're not just like, you know, snap our fingers and something magical is going to happen. But I think it really applies to anything in life. If we really, we want to get something out of whether it's, I don't know, dealing with a good friend or it's parenting or it's um, work, Everything requires some level of thinking ahead. And there's another very famous phrase that I think could be helpful for all of us. Ezu Chacham, the sages in the ethics of our fathers, asks, who is a wise person? A roes anolad, somebody who can see a little ahead. There's a little of a crystal ball. Think it out. What's going to be? Right? I'm going to get to this meeting, and I'll just apply it to forgiveness. Like, if I want to forgive, and if I want to, like, reconcile then I'm not going to just be, well, we'll play it by ear. I'm going to actually think, if I say this, this person's going to respond that way. And when that person responds that way, I'm going to say this. Just a little preparation can go a long way. Um, and I, I feel like um, we should be doing that in our spiritual lives. We should be doing that in our uh, romantic lives and everything. And just not letting, just like, just not like, you know, going into it and expecting it to be magical. I love it. Also, all the more so, when we walk into any room, before there's even something to forgive, to look at everyone with like looking at everyone with a, with a good eye that 
I'm sure they didn't mean it that way. How often, you just talked about this generation, Gen Z and millennials, are they walking around going, that that triggers me, that offends me, I don't even want to talk about it. It's like, well, what if we actually came into the room like, oh, I'm sure you didn't mean it that way, but this is what you said. Did I get that right? Imagine what kind of a different world it would be. It would be a very different world. And it, we, we would be less likely to cancel each other because we would be giving other people the benefit of the doubt. And the problem with not doing that is that what ends up happening, at the, the net result is that we're just left with people we agree with. And that's a very- uh, Oh, and point. also only for now, because if you keep going into a room saying, you're wrong, I'm right, uh, no, you didn't agree with this other person, I know how small is that group gonna get until there's no one left? Yeah, and it's sad because you don't really grow unless there's a clash of ideas. You know, just think about in a courtroom, where you have the defense and the prosecution literally coming opposite ends of each other, because that's the best way that a human being can arrive at some kind of truth is to have both, you know, and that's why, you know, you talked about a machlok at the Shem Shemayim before, about a debate, but for the sake of it, why are we debating each other? Because I want to get a little closer to the truth and I don't believe I've got a monopoly on it. So I want to talk to, I specifically want to talk to someone who, who disagrees with me. What? I don't, what is, I'm not really going to grow very much by talking to somebody who already agrees. I already know what I believe. I know my opinion. I want to hear what someone else has to say. Um, you know, I'm just to say something. I had the honor many years ago of working for a senator here in New York City. I was in graduate school at the time. Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was a great senator. And I remember him. He passed away years ago. He was a liberal Democrat. Now, what's interesting is that he was the one who defeated Zionism is racism bill in the United Nations. He was wow. the American representative to the UN before he became. And in the night, this is in the 1970s, he defeated this bill. In the, okay, but I used to see him going out to lunch with conservative Republicans. He was a liberal Democrat. He wasn't doing it for, you know, for people to take pictures to show everybody how, how open minded. He was just interested in other people's ideas. And his colleagues and friends were people who he vehemently disagreed with and were, were voting on completely opposite, but they were his colleagues and his friends. And I figured out how he did it. He never personalized things. Stuff never got personalized. And that's another very important teaching. We, when, whenever there's a machlok at Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, from the house of Shammai, the house of Hillel, these were two great Talmudic sages who always argued. So they never says, it never says the machlok at Hillel and Shammah. It never just says their names. It says the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai, the academy of, because the children, the sons of Hillel married the daughters of Shammai and vice versa. They actually got along, but they had arguments, they had debates. And I'm wondering how we can pull back things to get back to that place where we could sit in the same room with people we vehemently disagree with and grow from that experience somehow and not have to cancel them because I don't want to hear their ridiculous opinions. It can't be true because it ain't mine. So it's, um, I mean, it, it's just, you know, and, and it, it does tie in a little to the preparation because you do have to be a little more strategic about those conversations. You have to think it out a little in advance. How are we going to have a pleasant exchange of ideas if we are so on a different page? But how are we going to continue? I mean, how is Israel right. going to continue? 
How's right. any country or how's any people? We can't exactly. make good decisions. We, we, we're not, it's just a very unpleasant, you know, when, I mean, people now, Republicans, you know, singles won't date other Democratic. It's ridiculous. I know for years since 2008, uh, because I've been on the apps for that long, unfortunately, I've seen people say, if you voted for this person, swipe left, which means get get rid of me. And I just had a conversation um, because I'm pretty vocal about it on my Instagram that that I happen to love Robert F. Kennedy. So I I know him. He's a, a total mensch. I think what they did to him in the, in the media is is ridiculous, but it, it does it makes sense to me because there's literally like two companies that run the media and they own now both Fox and CNN and MSNBC. So whatever we're listening to, we really have to filter through what that that Bates Pfizer or whoever is running it like really believes in because they they own the news, so they have a say in what we're listening to. And to hear someone say, I don't, I don't care, you know, who's listening to this right now, you, you can totally cancel me if you want, but I know the guy and I know how vehemently loving and defending of Israel and the Jewish people RFK is. He's a, he's a devout Catholic and he loves Torah and he loves Christianity. He loves religion. He thinks, and he thinks it's so healthy to have debate over um, halacha. He loves, he has friends that are Republicans. He has friends that are Democrats. And he's similar in that way to, to Moynihan. And I, I, I just find him so refreshing. And he constantly will say, I agree that Trump said this, or I, I disagree with what he said, but I, 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 I think that there are good and bad in, in everyone. And it's so rare. And it's so refreshing that he doesn't personalize it. He doesn't usually speak badly about anybody because he'll say, I, I will not be, you know, Trump's ally in, in politics. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to run with him, but he doesn't say it in a mean way. And right. I, I don't think people can handle it because they're so used to having identity politics where it's like, you know, that underhanded joke that Trump will say, or maybe overhanded or what Obama might've said it worked by, you know, there's so much division and it's so refreshing. So, you know, I, this is all yeah. stick to the issues. That's my feeling is stick. stick to the issues. But you said before, and I just want to pin this, it's not pleasant to uh, cancel someone because of, you know, who they are politically. But I don't know if, unfortunately, I don't think that that's people's intention anymore. I don't even think people remember what pleasant is. And I don't think they necessarily want that. They get fuel. We're so addicted to these hormones of, I got upset and let me find that and let me share it with everybody and, and be upset and, and show everyone how wrong this person. People would much rather be right than kind today. <laughs> Jill and I got into a fight years ago and I went to one of my colleagues, good friends, he's also a rabbi. He's now the president of YU, Yeshiva University, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. And I was telling him about whatever, I was upset about something and he started to smile as I'm describing it. And he said, Mark, do you wanna be right or do you wanna be married? <laughs> I was like, I mean, I'd like to stay married. He goes, it's okay to just say you have like a disagreement. And by the way, because you can't stay married that way either. I don't know what people who are single think that what, everyone is agreeing on everything all the time. That's not the way marriages go, good marriages even. And you have to learn how to fight and you have to learn how to fight fairly and fight in a way that's not gonna kill each other, but somehow maintain the relationship. I think that's what we have to do in our society. We have to learn how to fight again. We don't know how to do that. And, you know, you also said something about the emotion that people feel so good when they, I, I don't know, why does it make people feel so good that they, other people are agreeing with? 
Like, why is it such a great? It's a great question. I know the answer. I've studied it. They would rather have a sense, and this is scary. This is dangerous, actually. They would so much rather have a sense of belonging than uh, think for themselves. And it is sadly how we had Nazi Germany. And we have to really, and I think that's what the laws that I asked you about at the beginning. You see, you know how to tie it all back together. The reason I asked you about the laws of Judaism and how they were the 1.0 for all three of the giant religions in this world and why we really don't have, it's dangerous to throw them all away just because we're not completely Orthodox or, and that was another thing I wanted to ask you about, like, what is modern Orthodoxy? Maybe we'll have to have a separate podcast for that, but to have these beautiful flavors, like I I heard, um, uh, Eliza Ben Shalom, who you had on your podcast recently, who's an old friend of mine, I met her at the Israelite retreat. She said on some trailer for the show that she's on on Netflix, the Jewish matchmaking, there are 15 million Jews in the world and there's 15 million ways to be Jewish. In other words, we take these laws because that's where we started with the laws. It wasn't just the beautiful stories. It's this is how you keep Shabbat and this is how you talk to your parents and this is how you care for your children and all that. So, you know, people, it's very dangerous when we lose these laws because all of a sudden it becomes, well, what do you think the group wants? Very dangerous. There's no individuality. So maybe I, can I, can I sum up? I love talking about the modern orthodoxy stuff. Please. And then we, we have to go because you have a family and a whole congregation to run. And I want to also know how to get in touch with you, but yes, talk about modern North. Talk no. about generally speaking that there's different flavors of Judaism. What those look. First of all, there's, there, there's, Different flavors of Judaism. Um, I, I I don't like to pretend that I'm a scholar in all areas. I do know this particular area quite well because I'm I'm literally a poster child for modern orthodoxy. There's a picture of me <laughs> at Yeshiva University, like a Stalin-sized picture of me there. And um, I went there. My dad went there. My kids go there. We literally have three generations, and that's like the um, that's like, you know, drink the Kool-Aid, you know, you go to YU. For those of you listening, it's called Yeshiva University. I don't even know I'm not being paid by them. So I'm not sure why I'm promoting them. But um, I do believe in this approach to, to Judaism, which is a full commitment to Jewish law and Jewish tradition, Shabbat, kosher, anything you would find, any Orthodox or not Orthodox, but someone who considers themselves an observant Jew someone who follows the Jewish traditions. Plus, what does it mean to be modern Orthodox? So I think there's three areas. Number one, what's called in Hebrew Torah Umada. I'll come back to it. Number two, religious Zionism. And number three, women. The women is the most complicated. Number one, Torah Umada is a a phrase. It's actually um, in the logo of YU. Umada means science, Torah with science meaning that we believe that um, in order to have the highest level of spiritual perfection, we are sort of marrying or synthesizing Torah with the greatest um, of human wisdom. Uh, Now, it's not all human wisdom, because some human wisdom conflicts and contradicts with the Torah, but the parts of human wisdom that are consistent or can complement classical Judaism, whether it's in in the social sciences and the humanities, like like literature or philosophy, or it's the hard sciences, seeing God in the human anatomy, in physics and chemistry and biology, that those are also a way of coming closer to God. Those are also a way by studying those areas and applying them to our lives and going into those fields 
um, whether it's law, whether it's uh, psychology, it's philosophy, it's literature, it's becoming a physician, that we believe that that, that is a, also a way of perfecting ourselves spiritually because we are uplifting the world. We're making the world a better place. And it's, it's not a Torah-only approach, okay? So it's called Torah Umada. That's the first part. The second has to do with Israel, that even though Israel is not run, um, you know, according to Jewish law, it's not a theocracy in that sense, and it's not following the Torah per se, modern Orthodox Jews still value the state of Israel, even though it's a secular state, uh, either because we believe it's somehow the beginning of some messianic kind of thing, or we see the creation of a modern state in the land of our forefathers as an expression of God's hand in modern history. That was Rabbi Soloveitchik's view. The other view was Rav Cook's view. And that's really a, um, a full embrace of Israeli society. Even the parts of Israeli society that are not necessarily you know, following the Torah, but it's part of, of having a Jewish land and a Jewish state because you feel that it came about through some kind of supernatural means. And if you study, and I know you have, you know, uh, 1948, 1967, and just, just the miracle that is Israel. I mean, how does Israel continue to just to maintain herself in the, in the rough neighborhood she is? It's just, it, it, you, in my mind, you can't explain it without God. And, and to say that it's just another country, it's just another government, and they're, they're following British common law, so it can't really be religious, religiously significant, that's not what my teachers taught me. Um, Rabbi Salvechik very much believed it was an expression of God in, in, in our own time, and Rav Cook taught that he really believed, that's why he would go to these very secular kibbutzes and hug the pioneers, the chalutzim, uh, because he thought that they were bringing the Mashiach, even if they weren't personally observant Jews. Um, and that's what it means to be a modern Orthodox Jew also, is to embrace Israel, to support Israel, to love Israel, of course, making Aliyah. If you're not making Aliyah, supporting it from the sidelines like we're doing here, that's uh, th that's another big part of being modern Orthodox, an embrace of Western and other parts of culture that can help connect us to Hashem too, Israel. And then the trickiest part <laughs> is the women. <laughs> um, which, which I would say the difference is that we very much, modern orthodoxy very much believes in empowering women to be leaders, to be scholars, to be teachers, and to be role models. And not, um, and I'm not trying to put this down, not only, let's say, to be moms or housewives, um, but to also be out there making a kid of Shashem and, and, and also being Torah scholars. And just because we don't have rabbis, uh, in the, let's say, Orthodox world, or even the modern Orthodox world, um, in general, um, that doesn't more mean- women, more women. More women, I'm sorry, yeah. thank you. Okay. We women. have rabbis, we just don't have female rabbis, yeah. We have more female That doesn't mean that we're not interested in having female leaders or female Torah scholars. So at MGE, we always have women, I have women on staff, who are teachers, role models, get up every Shabbat and speak and give and answer people's questions and are, you know, just the rabbi term is, is used really, uh, we, we sort of keep it for the men, but there's a lot of misunderstanding behind that. that, that that's not meant to imply that we're only interested in turning to men for guidance and wisdom and for scholarship. 
Um, and, and I would say those are the three distinguishing factors between, let's say, modern orthodoxy and the rest maybe orthodoxy. I love it. And also, I want to just say for myself, being a, a super feminist in college and then, uh, you know, like always walking around in my you know, whatever theater clothes and you can imagine what I dressed like and who I was at the time taking feminist classes. When I found what it means to be divine feminine energy and divine masculine and I was studying under Rebanit Hankin at Nishmat only for two months. It was enough though. When I found Midrash Rachel, I, I found my, my school, but when I was at Nishmat. Jill also studied at Nishmat, amazing place. She's, it is, yeah. She, she should live and be well. She's an unbelievable powerhouse of a She's scholar. also an unbelievable human. And, and the, the struggles that God has tested her with in life, I don't want to go into it, but she has overcome so much, even, even when I met her, but all the more so afterwards and how she still rises to the occasion and has so much unshakable faith in God and the, the terrorism that's affected her family and all that. But I want to say, I remember she said, why not Eve? And I was blown away because the way she described Eve in the Garden of Eden and how I learned it just two years earlier at school and college at this liberal school where it, my teacher meant well, but like totally just hammered any religion and, and, and took it in this total different context. And then hearing her read it in the Hebrew and, 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 and quote scholars who said Eve was way more masterful and way more um, dimensional than, than, than Adam was and was thinking with a different kind of brain. And when I, when I heard that, I went, oh, this is why we don't have female rabbis. And I, I have to say, it was this huge breakthrough moment with me because I used to run around the time that I met you. And I was, I was going to reform shuls on Saturdays and not knowing what Jen was up. And I, I met wonderful rabbis there, but they couldn't answer my question when I would say, why is it that we just say father and king in, in these in these prayer books? I hated my father at the time. I didn't want a king. I hated the, that the president was a man. I mean, I was like a super feminist. I couldn't even open the prayer books because I knew I was going to see man terms. And when I just two years later was studying with her in, in Eretz Israel, and she's she's teaching me about how divine feminine is so powerful. I had this breakthrough moment where I was like, we can't be rabbis because we have so much to do in the home. And it's such an important job to be a mom and a wife. It's the most important job in the world. It literally is the most, from the second the baby's in there till the time they're grown, it's how could they be right now? Later on when they're retired, could they be Rebbenites? Could they be Moritanus? Like I know Moritana Elisa, I used to work with her at B'nai David here in LA. It's powerful for a woman to get up and speak and we should be allowed to speak and we should be writing books. And yet, if we made being a mom and a wife, the most, and if men made this too, the most important thing in the world and not just something like, oh, my wife will take care of it. It's a home thing. How much more so would the world benefit? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we're starting to see the negative repercussions of decades of looking down on women who have decided to make their focus the home it's not for everyone um a lot of our friends who consider themselves orthodox jews are you know women are working so here's the rub the problem is is that america's very into the public whatever is public must be great and whatever is private is probably not too important but judaism is the exact opposite judaism we believe in building ourselves up from within not externally but from within and that's the feminine. The feminine is the recipient. It, it, there's so much Kabbalah on this of, about how important that is and when the world loses that. And Lubavitch Rebbe of blessed memory had this incredible teaching. He felt 
The purpose of human existence was to feminize the masculine. But if we keep degrading the feminine and saying it's not important, or it needs to be disassociated from motherhood and from classical traditional mother roles, we're gonna lose that energy in the world. Um, and unfortunately, things are going the other way. Um, you know, right, the I have so yeah. many friends, sorry to cut you, I wanna hear about what the Talmud says. Like my stepmom, for instance, was 48 when she met my dad. I'm 47, I'm, I've been single this whole time. And you know, I work harder than anybody to meet people, go to events, fly to New York. How many times have you seen me fly to New York since I moved out here trying to go on dates? And yet it doesn't matter how many apps I'm on, the way the world is set up, it's like my feminine being, learning so much about how to be feminine and all this stuff, it just doesn't, it doesn't take, it's like the world can't grasp it. And so people latch onto my accomplishments and I'm like, that's great, but I actually more than anything wanna be a mom at home, like more than anything. And it, it just doesn't compute with the, the circles that I'm in and, and that's fine, it's, it's all meant to be. But I remember my stepmom saying to me, you know, she worked on Star Search and she worked for Ed McMahon and she lived in the city in a, on the Upper East Side for a long time. And she said, Barb, I have to tell you, the three girls that I shared an apartment with from Syracuse, she went to Syracuse, she's, she's in her 60s now. Um, she was there for, for a number of years and she left in her 30s because she's like, if I stay in this apartment, I'm 35, I'm never going to meet my person. And it still took her 12 years to meet my dad. But she said there was no way I was going to have kids because back then they didn't talk about freezing eggs and all that stuff. But she just resigned herself like, no, my job is more important than having a family. And now she always says to me, I wish it had been different. Right. And, and that was the beginning. So for 20 something years, we've been walking around thinking that's what women should do. Yeah, it's um, it's not good for the world. It's not good for people's own personal happiness. And by the way, I'm seeing it with a lot of the guys because a guy still wants to meet a feminine, a woman who's a woman. And, and, and I feel bad for a lot of the women, a lot of my students, because to successfully compete in the workplace, you need to start developing a little more aggressive tendencies to let's say be successful at Morgan Stanley. But, and then how do you turn that off when you go on a date and the guy's looking, yeah. not for, the guy's not looking for a pushover and a you know, that that's ridiculous, but he is looking for a nurturing kind of personality. And, and that, you know, that's getting sucked out of a lot of our women today. Now, and I'm not saying that a person shouldn't go into a profession because of that, just, they say ther half of therapy is just being aware, just being aware that it's having that effect. The Talmud says, the way of the man is to conquer, the way of the woman is to nurture. And, um, and that's basically what happens with the sperm and the egg. I mean, that's just biologically, you can keep fighting it, but that's essentially the way God created us. Okay, for there to be, you know, I was just having this discussion with somebody about getting married. They want to have a double ring ceremony. And I said, the man is supposed to give, the woman is supposed to receive. I know everybody wants to do an exchange, but that's not going to marry you. That's not going to work. It's not the way God made us. And it's a beautiful thing. Let's embrace that. And I think within that embracing of that, we could still have great women leaders in the workforce and role models out there, but understand that what really gives a woman her power is that which was, is her nurturing ability and that which, which comes from within, not external. Because all you're trying to do is mimic the guy, and we already have those guys. 
And those guys are not looking for that. I just yeah. had a guy two days ago say to me, what do you do for work? And I said, it's, it's in my profile. Do you see it? He's like, well, it says voiceover, educator, podcaster, author, but how do you make money? And he wrote it so large. And I, I actually had this pit in my stomach where I thought he wants to see my tax returns. Like he won't, and he wouldn't get on the phone with me. I said, can we talk? Cause I feel like, you know, I felt like a Joan Rivers. I felt like Joan Rivers. Can we talk here? You know, but he refused to get on the phone with me, but kept texting me. And no matter how much I said, Hey, I, I feel like, and by the, by the second question, I really kind of was trying not to cancel him. But when I saw that so big with the letters, how do you make money? I thought to myself, we've lost it. Like this is, this is what a guy really wants to know about a woman. That's very sad. I'm sorry about that. It's okay. Anyway, back to you. So how do we get in touch with you and your amazing um, family? So if anybody wants to be in personally in touch, just email me. Seriously, I'm happy to just be directly in touch. Put your email in the show notes. I just put the email on RMWiles at Jewish Experience. And I think I sent you from my Instagram, if people want to follow me on Instagram uh, or on Facebook and um, also the Wildcast. The Wildcast. And it's W-I-L-D-E-S, correct? W-I-L-D-E-S, cast. It's just the Wildcast. It's on Spotify. It's all over the place. Yeah, you're amazing at interviewing people and you you really lead with your heart. And by the way, he plays great music with his family and in bands sometimes. I mean, how cool do you get? This guy plays the drums like you wouldn't believe. Um, my biggest nachas is playing with my son. I love it. It's it's the best thing in the world. We should all, be, that's my bracha to all of us is that you should play music with the kids and with other people's kids and just play a lot of music. It's good stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Well, this episode was jam-packed with wisdom. So here are our nuggets of wisdom. I am going to really try to do the Cliff Notes version of them. What is objective morality? Why is it important to have a set of laws? Feelings are important, but the day we start allowing our feelings to dictate our behaviors is the day that we fall as a society. People don't feel the need for laws because we're lazy by nature. You need spiritual laws in order to have direction and values. Rabbi Wilds mentioned that he's never had so many students who are on medication, so many sad students either, but at the same time, he's never had so much of a thirst or a hunger or drive for structure and spiritual direction in their lives. The creation cannot know itself. So for people to say, no, I create my own life. I am the only creator in my life. There is no one bigger than me. It's almost like antithetical to what the Torah says. Being humble is the greatest quality. We don't know everything. It's impossible, right? We have to look to something higher than ourselves. There is someone with a capital O above all of us. And if we think we can naturally intuit right from wrong all the time in every instance without looking into some type of divine wisdom that's beyond ourselves, we are fooling ourselves. We can't handle the truth all the time. And we also probably can't handle all of the commandments all the time. No one can. There's not never been a person that was able to do all of them at once all the time. Although I know a lot of people have tried. And there is an old Talmudic saying that says, try to grab onto too much and you'll get nothing. There's so much beauty and wisdom and it's not all or nothing. Judaism never was all or nothing. God would prefer some observance of the commandments than none at all. Rabbi Wilds also said, there's very little community left in the world. Americans are bowling now more than ever, but fewer are bowling in teams. And that's uh, the concept from a book called Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. 
He said, COVID times opened our eyes. We need to know each other. We're so lonely and we need each other. We can't be isolated and unhappy. Work in isolation. Community creates connectedness and it makes us happier. Community is oxygen. People have work buddies, but it's different than having a religious community, a community of all different races and kinds of people who are coming together in a spiritual context, different ages, different backgrounds, uh, different socioeconomic points, uh, just lishma, meaning for the sake of heaven. And there is something about being part of a church or a synagogue or a mosque or an organization that gets together in prayer, because when we do that, we are not there because we sought out the same exact kind of people. We are, we're there just to promote kindness and goodness in the world. And no one's hopefully showing up there just to be seen like, oh, see, I showed up at synagogue today or showed up at church because this is like, I'm, I can take a picture and, and, and put it on my Facebook and show the world. I mean, generally in synagogues, we don't use cameras, um, especially on the Sabbath or in holidays where we're not supposed to be using electricity. And we are there for the experience of it, for living in the moment. A church, synagogue, mosque, place of worship shouldn't be political, but it should be a place to feel connected to God and our fellow human beings. Political discussion should not be talked about in a synagogue or church or a community that is spiritual. We should be congregating there without political commentary and just talking about values and hope. Moral and spiritual issues uh, can be talked about but keep them away from the political divide. Don't seek to divide more and more. God judges us and treats us the way that we look at other people. We need mercy. They need mercy. If we want compassion from God, we should give it to others, measure for measure. We don't just, as Jews, forgive just to forgive. And I don't know if, if that's um, making light of the Christian take on that either, but I do think that there is something beautiful that both faiths can teach one another. And I think it's nice that there is a difference there and it can be debated and it can be a really healthy debate. Judaism doesn't believe that we should just give someone forgiveness if they continue on with poor behavior and aren't genuine when they ask for forgiveness. There's a difference between forgiving the person versus the act against you itself. However, if someone does meaningfully ask for forgiveness three times and we don't forgive them, by the third time, it's as if we did the wrongdoing ourselves. It's self-destructive not to try to make peace with what happened, even if the person wasn't earnest when they asked for forgiveness. Try to make peace with what happened. And if the person doesn't try to get forgiveness from you and doesn't run after you, and even if they've passed away, you don't want it to be plaguing you, what they did to you for the rest of your life. Learn from it and move on from it as best you can. But you technically don't have to forgive them if they're not genuine and sincere. So that was a new clarification today for the podcast. Take care of yourself. Protect yourself, even if it means calling the police, going to get help, talking to a counselor, to a chaplain, to somebody in your religious community that has a relationship with the divine and really promotes good energy. And sometimes they can give really good insight into what you need to be forgiving. The best possible scenario is to try to work things out. You have a responsibility to yourself to be able to work it out and not hold a grudge. We do have the bedtime Shema, which is one paragraph and anyone can look it up. It's a bedtime nighttime prayer. I say this every night and I sort of minced it down to two sentences. Please God forgive anyone who hurt me intentionally or unintentionally in this lifetime or in a previous lifetime. And 
please forgive me for hurting anyone intentionally or unintentionally in this lifetime or in a previous lifetime. Prepare so that your experiences can be holy ones. Rabbi Wilds has a great book. It's called The 40-Day Challenge. You can pick it up in stores or online right now. When we don't give people the benefit of the doubt, we will continually just surround ourselves with people who we quote unquote agree with, maybe for now, but eventually, and as both people start to grow, hopefully, you will find things with any one person that you disagree with. I've never met two people that believe the exact same thing all the time. And it's also not really how a person grows to try to surround yourself with like-minded people all the time. The only way to arrive at a truth is to debate for the sake of heaven to get a little closer to the truth. No one has a monopoly on truth. Not you, not me. And I, like Rabbi Wilds, would like to talk with people who don't always believe or think like me so that I can grow. He also mentioned that he worked with Senator General Patrick Moynihan in Congress and his colleagues and his friends vehemently disagreed with him. That's General Patrick Moynihan's friends. And whenever the the two great Talmudic sages argued in the Talmud, it never just says their names, Hillel and Shammai. It would say the Academy of Hillel, the Academy of Shammai, or the House of Hillel, the House of Shammai says this or this. And why? Because their own children, even if they're parents or the people who were debating in the Talmud disagreed vehemently, they would encourage their own children and grandchildren and nephews and nieces to marry one another and not put up a stumbling block just because they were different. Can you imagine Democrats and Republicans doing that today where one might vehemently disagree with another and say, no, I still want you to marry that person. I mean, it actually makes me shudder to think that there are families right now where they are so committed to their political party and yet they haven't been to synagogue or church in such a long time. And I think we have a responsibility as a society to change that. Uh, Rabbi Wilds also went into the three main differences between modern Orthodox practice and the Haredi view of Orthodoxy or people who are maybe to the left of that or to the right. And so he was defining in three ways, there's probably more than that, but in three specific ways how modern Orthodoxy is different. And here they are. There's three. Number one, Torah umada, which means learning from the secular world as well as the Torah itself, embracing of Western and other parts of culture that can connect us to God even deeper and to the Torah even deeper. Number two, the honoring of the state of Israel, learning about it, supporting it, and appreciating the state of Israel, considering where she is located, making Aliyah, moving to Israel, becoming a citizen there, supporting from afar, And the third main difference of modern orthodoxy versus all the other flavors of Judaism is that we empower women to be role models and scholars. We don't just want them working in the home, although that is the most important. He and I agreed at this. Uh, The most important job for a woman is to be a wife and a mother. However, it's not for everybody. And women can do both at the same time as being a wife and or a mother. She could also allow herself to climb very high in uh, politics, in scholarly thought, in Jewish thought, in wisdom, in teaching, in artistry, um, and all of the above. And if we as a society keep degrading the feminine, the divine feminine, and making light of it or disassociating from it and saying it doesn't exist or traditional feminine roles and child raising or homemaking 
are not important, we are going to lose it. And that would seriously be the demise of our society. Thanks for listening. It was so great to have you here. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please feel free to write me at info at Please pick up a ticket for my show that's coming to the Broadway area on October 15th, 2023 at 2 p.m. I would love to see you there. Have a great rest of your day. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode could inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always.